Hey y'all, you're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy, thanks for stopping by. On this episode of In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile, we're down in Miami again, this time talking with Dr. Jaime Shushliki, the director of the Cuban Studies Institute. This organization preserves and disseminates the history and culture of Cuba, provides research and information to the world about contemporary Cuba, U.S.-Cuba relations, and Cuban-Americans. Most importantly, the Institute is preparing for the day that Cuba finally becomes free. I'm also going to use this episode to interject some of my favorite quotes by the great Jose Marti, whom which we'll learn a bit about thanks to Dr. Shushliki. We start out this program with an introduction to both Dr. Shushliki and the Institute itself. My name is Jaime Shushliki. I'm the director of the Cuban Studies Institute. This is an independent think tank in Coral Gables, Florida. Previous to that, I was the director of the Cuban Institute at the University of Miami. I was there for 50 years. And I've written several books on Cuba. Now, a story I heard yesterday from uh, Nick Gutierrez was how you went from the University of Miami to doing this. And I thought it was an interesting story. Do you mind sharing that? Well, the university got a new uh, president that really had a line of involvement with Cuba and uh, relationship with Cuba. We had maintained that it was best for the university and for the Institute not to have relations with Cuba, that many universities that became involved with Cuba during the communist era, when communism collapsed in Eastern Europe, were kicked out. And I didn't think that that was a good idea for the University of Miami, plus the fact that we're in Miami, where there's a a million and a half Cubans. So I expressed that to the president. He wasn't too happy. So one point, the provost, uh, called me and said, look, there are a lot of things happening here that you're not going to be happy. I would like to make it easy for you to retire. Man. And after 50 years, I said, okay, I'm going to leave. So you started this institute by yourself? Yes. Okay. Well, explain what they do. What well, do. we do mostly, here we do mostly research. We don't teach. Research on Cuban history, research on new things like the laws that have been passed, Regarding the embargo, uh, we do analysis of U.S. policy. We do studies about Cuba and uh, the island and companies that are interested in future investments in Cuba. We do research for them and prepare studies for them. Work gives me wings. Others are intoxicated by wine. Myself, by overwork. From wine, foam. From overwork, poems. So let's talk about who's called the father of Cuba, Jose Marti. Give a sketch of his life and how he became the revolutionary that he was. Well, Marti's parents were Spaniards. He was born in Cuba, in Havana, in 1853. He very young became 
involved with the independent mo movement of Cuba. He came under the influence of some of his teachers that wanted freedom from Cuba, that Cuba would be best without control of Spain. So at a very young age, he was arrested, uh, deported to Spain. And in Spain, he was able to uh, study law. He finished and then returned to Cuba to start again uh, conspiring with those Cubans that wanted independence. He was kicked out of Cuba and then settled in New York, traveled throughout Latin America. And in the 1890s, got together a group of former Cuban military people and people that had fought against Spain and created a, an organization called Partido Revolucionario Cubano, Cuban Revolutionary Party, and organized groups in exile in Tampa, in Key West, throughout Latin America, and landed with one of those groups in 1895 to fight against Spain. He wasn't a military person. He was a romantic from the 19th century. So he was killed very quickly in, uh, in the war. And May, on May 19, he was shot by the Spanish troops. His legacy was a very prolific writer. He, you go to any library, you would find about 40 volumes of his writings. He wrote poetry and he wrote prose. And he was sort of a teacher for the Cuban generations in which he talked about respect for human rights, uh, uh, unity of the Cuban people, respect for the different races. Cuba was partly black. Uh, 30 or 40 percent of the population was mulatto. Many of them were former slaves. So he tried to create a harmonious relationship. He was a great speaker, also a great lover. <laughs> yes. So both the Cuban exile community and Castro's government claim Jose Marti as their own. Yeah, it's like a George Washington. Right. What were Marti's core ideas when it came to governing? Well, he was a 19th century thinker. Uh, basically, he believed in capitalism. He believed in ownership of property, especially uh, small farmers. He wanted the farmers to have property. He liked the political system of the United States, although he was critical about a lot of things in the United States, but he felt that Cuba should be have uh, division of power, judicial, uh, legislative, and an executive power. Uh, he wanted respect for labor, and he, wanted, he was a defender of the labor groups in Cuba, wanted those groups to be uh, respected and paid well. Basically, that's, that's Marti conception. He was also worried about this is an era of American imperialism, so he was worried about U.S. expansion in Latin America. So he felt that the war for independence in Cuba should be very quick to prevent the United States from intervening. It didn't happen. The war dragged on, and the United States got involved in Cuba, Puerto Rico, the Philippines, etc. Do you have a favorite uh, saying or quote or poem by Marti that you can sure. read? Liberty is very expensive, and it's got to be purchased for its price or accept to live without it. 
do you find that sometimes how we make an icon out of human beings and sometimes people will kind of project onto uh, people from history particularly you think about in our country uh, you know Abraham Lincoln or you know he stood for this you know and or or Martin Luther King or, or something like that what are some ways that Marty have maybe has been twisted and uh, <laughs> well yeah uh, Marti was twisted first by corrupt politicians that used to recite his uh, uh, sayings and his words, but never fulfilled his vision over Cuba. But then it was completely changed uh, when the communist regime took power and Fidel Castro and used Marti to explain that Marti was an admirer of Marxism, was an admirer of uh, Lenin and admirer of Marx, and that the Cuba that he wanted was a socialist or a Marxist Cuba, which is not true. Mm-hmm. Marti wrote about uh, Marx, wrote about the Marxist ideology, but never sympathized. He felt that that violated the human spirit and the human ideas and the human rights. So he never admired uh, Marxism, but Fidel used some of his writings to convince and to educate the Cuban population into thinking that Marti uh, was a communist. Right. I remember a, uh, a refugee uh, that arrived in Miami and saw Marti's picture in somebody's office and says, oh, you admire that Marxist? Oh, wow. <laughs> The pain of imprisonment is the harshest, most devastating pain, murdering the mind, searing the soul, leaving marks that will never be erased. It's born from a lump of iron and quickly sweeps away this mysterious world that agitates every heart. It grows, feeding on every shadowy sorrow, and finally it overflows, swollen by scalding tears. Arrancame la vida Next up, a short history of Jews in Cuba. The first Jews probably came with Spain, and many of them were what they known as Marranos, converted Jews, and so on. Uh, there was a migration of Jews at the beginning of the 20th century when Cuba became independent. A lot of these Jews that participated in the uh, U.S. intervention in Cuba some of them remain in Cuba, some of them wanted a synagogue, so that's how the beginning of a Jewish community took place in Cuba. Then the bulk of the Cubans came in the 1920s and 30s, some of them trying to escape communism and the Soviet Union, some of them trying to escape not Nazism, so a Jewish community developed in the, in the 30s and 40s, approximately 10,000 Cubans lived in the island. Uh, Most of them in Havana, most of them became small merchants, although the new generation that grew up in Cuba, some of them were already professional, some of them became lawyers and physicians, etc. But at the time of the Castro Revolution, there were about 12,000 people in Cuba. Today there's less than a thousand. Most of them left after 1959, yeah. In Europe, different Jews and different uh, they took on the countries that they lived in. So you had the German Jews and the Polish Jews, and they all 
kind of absorbed some of the culture and sure. became their own things. Of course, they came to the United States, and sometimes they didn't get along. What was some of the aspects of Cuban culture that, that Jews uh, absorbed? The music and the food. Really? Okay. <laughs> well, actually, the lifespan of the Cuban, of the Juban, as they call them, the Juban. <laughs> in Jewish community, was very short. They had arrived, mostly of them, by 1940, and they were all kicked out or left after 1959. So they didn't have too much time to absorb the community. They had a good life in Cuba. The Cubans respected the Jews. They made a little fun of them. Uh, but the Jews got along, and, and they, they didn't have any problem. The great heart of America cannot be judged by the distorted, morbid passion, ardent desires, and anguishes of New York life. In this turbulent stream, natural currents of life cannot appear. All is darkened, untinged, dusty. Virtues and vices cannot be, at first glance, properly analyzed. They run away, tumultuously mingled. Prejudice, vanity, ambition, every poison of the soul effaces or stains the American nature. It is necessary to look for it, not in the crowded street, but in the sweet home quietness, not in the convulsive life of the city, but in the open-hearted existence of the country. Can you highlight somebody from uh, Cuban history that most people have never heard of that you think should be studied more or known more? Well, there was a politician in Cuba in the 1940s and early 1950s named Eduardo Chivas. He was the founder of a political group called the Ortodoxo Political Party. He was a very close follower of Martí, uh, pounded upon the corruption in Cuba, had a radio program that he transmitted every Sunday, uh, six, seven o'clock at night, talking to the Cuban people. He became a national hero, was elected to the Senate, and then in 1951, he committed suicide. Now, why is that? Well, nobody has uh, psychoanalyzing what right. he committed suicide. Well, I shouldn't say that, yeah. <laughs> well, what's the theories? The theories are that he was frustrated with the tempo of Cuban politics, that he wasn't able to convince the Cuban people that they needed a change, a profound change in Cuba. Uh, also, he promised to show some corruption during, during one of the administration, and he was unable to do it, so some people made fun of him. But basically, I think he wanted to awaken the Cuban people to what was happening. In, a, in that sense, he was a forerunner of revolution, and a uh, forerunner of Fidel Castro. So he was very important in creating the intellectual, the uh, atmosphere about revolution and the need for profound change in Cuba, which Castro picked up upon when he came to power. I guess people still muse today, what if he had lived, how, how different things would be? Are they still Chibas? Yeah. Okay, he wasn't an administrator. He wasn't an ideologue. In a sense, he was an articulator of change, a promoter of change, 
a promoter of, of revolution. So that was his contribution. I don't think he would have been a great administrator or a great leader had he come to power. Today, there's a kind of dismantling of the human mind. Gone are the days of high fences. Now is the time of broken fences. Now men are beginning to walk across the whole of the earth without stumbling. Before now, they had hardly begun to move when they ran into a wall of a gentleman's estate or the ramparts of a convent. Now we love a God who penetrates and prevails over everything. It seems profane to give the creator of all beings and of all that is to be the form of a single one of those beings. Since all human progress may consist in returning to the point of departure, we are returning to Christ, to the crucified Christ, the forgiving, captivating Christ of bare feet and open arms, and not to a heinous, satanic, malevolent, hateful, bitter, lashing, impious, crucifying Christ. With your institute, what are some of the issues that you all are dealing with daily? You, you're laughing, so. We deal with everything regarding Cuba. Uh, right now, Cuba is clamping down on the opposition. There's an iron curtain that is falling on Cuba in terms of uh, uh, press and in terms of internet. They tighten in the control of the internet. Uh, there's a group of independent newspaper people. They're not gonna let them publish anymore. They're gonna arrest them. Uh, they are forbidding people from writing for foreign uh, web pages. Uh, they're cutting down on the access to internet, uh, access to information coming to the island. So this is a very tight military government that wants to remain in power, although they've been in power for 60 years, they don't want to give up. And they are seeing a slowing down of the economy, a collapsing of the economy, to be correct, and they worried about a popular uprising. So they're squeezing as much as they can. Okay, so the debate over the, the embargo. You know, one side says we have to strangle the beast that is, the, you know, the communist government. Other people say, well, if you allow a little bit of uh, capitalism or a little bit of money into it, you know, the people will... will well, we, we've seen that in the past 10 years okay. as a result of the Obama right. rapprochement with Cuba. Hasn't changed Cuba. Cuba is still an ally of Iran, Russia, mm -hmm. uh, China, North Korea and particularly Venezuela. That kind of incentive doesn't produce a dictatorship to say, okay, we're not gonna be a dictatorship anymore, we're gonna be nice to the people. These people that are in power in Cuba are committed to remain in power. No matter what the United States does, they're not gonna give concession, they're not gonna change their policy. They are committed to one ideology, one objective. I don't think the embargo is the problem of Cuba. The economy is a disaster, not because of the embargo, but because communist system, whether it was in Eastern Europe or in the Soviet Union, was a disaster. So it's the same thing in Cuba. Cuba, if they produce and they could have good crops and 
good products and so on. They can sell and buy from any country in the world. They don't have any production. There's no incentive for people to work, to produce. Therefore, it's an economy that is a subsistence economy. And therefore, embargo or no embargo is not going to make a difference. A few days ago from when we record this, President Trump met with several uh, people that were representing uh, victims of various regimes, including uh, Cubans. Does that help? And how is he doing overall, do you think, uh, for the, well, helping the Cuban people and the people that are oppressed? Well, one, he's showing solidarity with the oppressed people, which is very important. People need the message when they're in countries like this that there is somebody in the world that supports them and worries about them. That's one. Practically, he stopped the travel to Cuba by American tourists. And this is one of the other uh, arguments that I have with people. Oh, American tourists will go to Cuba and will make changes and so on. I met with uh, Senator Flake many years ago in Washington, and I spent about an hour trying to convince him that, well, tourists don't go to countries to change their political system. They go to drink rum, to have fun, to go to the beaches. Sometimes they don't speak the language. So the idea that tourism will go to a country and change a society is nonsense. So at the end of the conversation, uh, Senator Flake says, okay, professor, I had enough of you. (laughs) And I finished. But I, I finished by saying, look, if you really believe that tourism can change a society, you should advocate uh, American tourists going to North Korea and Iran. Hmm. He didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my end of my interview. So Trump has tightened the screws on the Cuban regime in the hope that they're going to give some concessions, which they won't. Maybe at some point the Cubans will jump in the streets and defy the system, but it hasn't occurred yet. Uh, there's a lot of fear. This is a very repressive regime. So for the time being, I think it's status quo. Oh, what a lesson. The Dutch, who had withstood all the cruelties of the Duke of Alba and the Inquisition, could not withstand an increase in their taxes. With taxes, everyone feels wounded. With the Inquisition... Each one could still hope that the executioner would knock at the neighbor's door, not at his own. You're a student of history, and often there's been revolutions to overthrow a terrible government. And generally, what happens is it gets replaced by something worse or something about the same. Not in all cases. Not not all cases, but go ahead, count me there, and we'll, we'll go on. Communism collapsed in Eastern Europe, right. and we had great regimes in, for example, the Baltic countries, uh, in Hungary, in maybe the Czech Republic. I mean, there's been a lot in Poland, there's been a lot of good changes there. In Mexico, there was a revolution in 1910, which brought about a much more modern and more respectful human rights. You're right, some regimes that were dictatorial were succeeded by other regimes that are also dictatorial or not good. But we can't generalize. Right. So what would be your strategy? What would have to happen to 
I know you can't guarantee things, but would help a good revolution, a re- revolution that would not end up making things worse in, in your Cuba, opinion, in Cuba, in Cuba. First of all, we have to emphasize that Cuba is an island, so it's therefore more difficult to penetrate with ideas, with people, military training, if that's what you want. So it's going to take a, a longer time. Uh, I don't think we've been consistent in sending intellectual messages to Cuba. I think it's very important to penetrate Cuba. Radio Marti does a little bit of that, but it's not enough. So penetration of ideas is very important for the Cuban people. Support, monetary and otherwise, providing weapons to people that wanted to fight, if that, that would be a policy that could be a policy of the U.S. Beyond that, create an isolation in the world, keep Cuba isolated, and so on. But Cuba has some allies. And like I said, the Russians are supporting them, the Iranians, the Chinese, the Venezuelans. So a lot of countries are supporting Cuba now. For folks listening to this who feel like they want to do something, uh, what do you advise? I mean, it would, well, I well, think first of all, they should send some money to the institute. Okay. <laughs> You take any denominations? We leave from the charity of the <laughs> right. of the people. So anybody that wants to support what we're doing, we do send information to Cuba. Mm-hmm. We try to help the Cuban people to understand what's happening, and uh, we have a, a little money. We don't. We're not rich, so we we do that. We're a nonprofit. Right. But if they want to do something in addition to money, what what is something they can do? Well, if they go to Cuba take the Declaration of Human Rights in Spanish, take documents and so on, but you're risking that they'll throw you out or they won't let you in. So that has also some risk. It, it's difficult for the for anybody in Europe or in, in Iowa to, to right. do something for Cuba. Right. There is something of the ship in every house in a foreign land. A certain sensation of indefinable unease persists. We feel the earth oscillating and our feet are unsteady upon it. At times we clutch the walls and where others find solid footing we lurch. The spirit is off balance. Do you care to tell about your own personal history with Cuba? <laughs> All right. I was born in Cuba in 1939, so... So you're fairly young. Pretty old. I went to uh, the University of Havana in the 19, late 1950s, and then 1960, when it, 1959, when it opened up after the Cuban Revolution. I became involved in, the, in supporting, not necessarily Castro, but ending the dictatorship that existed before Castro. Uh, I went into exile in New York. I spent three months. I returned to Cuba after Castro won. I got a job in the Ministry of Labor. Uh, They recruited me from the university. And I worked for uh, 10 months in the Ministry of Labor. But I was very disappointed. I was a uh, labor management uh, consultant or uh, arbiter. And then I used to work out the problems between management and labor. I used to sign papers, everybody signed it. And then all of a sudden, 
I see a, 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 the minister uh, sending a decree that they confiscated this company. And I said, why are they confiscating it? I worked it up. Well, there were labor problems. Mm. And I kept on seeing that happening. And then I decided, look, in 1960, I said, I had enough. I'm getting out of here. So I left Cuba, came to the United States, worked in a liquor store at night, <laughs> and uh, met a very nice young American woman that told me I had to study, otherwise I wouldn't get anywhere. So I followed her advice. I got my bachelor and master's at the University of Miami, and I went to Texas for my PhD. And then I returned to the University of Miami, okay. where I taught for 50 years. When I need to wrap up a little straw hat and boots that my son wore a year ago, I check to see if the newspaper I'm wrapping them in is written by the passions of men, or if it defends what is just, and only if it defends what is just do I wrap them in it. I believe in these contagions. So you're an author, and you've written several books on human history. Was it difficult to get those published? And Because generally in the publishing world, uh, they're, they're not keen on that particular version of Cuban history. Well, I started writing in the 1960s, a few years after the Cuban Revolution. And there was really not that much. And there was a lot of propaganda coming out. And my first book, I was fortunate at Scribner's, the great publisher, Hemingway publisher right. in New York, called me and said, would you like to write a history of Cuba? I said, sure. And that became my first book. has been published five or six times, has been reproduced, and has been used by 40 universities. Uh, so that became my book. Then I wrote something about Mexico. I have a history of Mexico that I wrote and became popular too. And then like that, you grow from one there. thing follow the other. Have you ever been protested or decried by some of Castro's proxies here in Many the United times. States? Really? Okay. Here, I went to a, give a lecture in Buenos Aires at the University of Belgrano. We had 50 students with placard and a, a lackey of imperialism. <laughs> get out of here. Yeah. Look, it's you get, yeah. part of the course. It's kind of proof you're doing something right, maybe. Well, the worst part is that my colleagues bought the Cuban Revolution propaganda. Right. And they kept on writing and uh, arguing and criticizing me where I know that they got false information and they were saying false things. So it, it became hurtful. Did you ever convert any of them, your colleagues? Well, I told them. I don't know whether I convert them. <laughs> I guess over the period of time, they realized I was right and they were wrong. But there was a, 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 an enchantment in the 60s of a Cuba uh, revolution, the beers, Che Guevara. Uh, che Guevara was a murderer. Right. And uh, people thought, oh, he was an icon of the revolution. And they're still doing it, yeah. yeah. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Shushliki and the CSI, go to cubanstudiesinstitute.us. Also, if you want to hear more of the voices of Cuban exiles, you should check out In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, episode 196, featuring Nicholas Jimenez of Cigar Snob Magazine, who talks 
about, of course, the cigar industry and his work in reporting on Cuban dissidents. There's also episode 193 where Bay of Pigs veteran Bill Muir tells about that fateful day that he and his brothers in arms tried to liberate his home country from the Castro dictatorship. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.